This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. But the fact of the matter is that man carries on this game of pretense into many, many arenas of his life. He moralizes on life, but he does not know the moral lawgiver. The reality about truth is that truth, by definition, is exclusive. Whether we like it or not, truth is exclusive. You may think, for example, Hinduism often says it's an all-accommodating religion. It isn't. You take a look at other world religions and see where these four questions are dealt with. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. I guarantee you, only in the Judeo-Christian worldview will you find these four questions answered with corresponding truthfulness and with the coherence of a worldview. As I hear their voices and hear their struggle, we are living in a world of billions of people with each one in their solitary world of struggle and questions. You and I believe, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that in Jesus alone we have the answers that are correspondingly true to every question raised and coherent when all of the answers are given together. So this week, Christianity Today published an in-depth report on allegations of sexual misconduct by popular apologist Ravi Zacharias. And so on Quick to Listen, we wanted to discuss this story and its stakes with CT Print News editor Daniel Silliman, who authored this report. And I just want to give a note to all of our listeners. We will be discussing specific details of this report. And as a result, this episode is probably not suitable for kids. The full report right now is on our website, as well as an editor's note offering insight about publishing stories about Christian leadership misconduct. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. I know we didn't talk about all of the details super specifically in that in that intro, Ted, but I would be interested still in kind of getting a gut check from you as we have yet another episode about Christian leader misconduct. So I've talked on this podcast you know, a number of times and, and elsewhere about kind of a dark night of the soul I had about five years ago. Not a dark night of the soul about God, but about Christian leadership and just having this unbroken month of dealing with allegations of moral failure among leaders. That month began with a tip about Ravi Zacharias, which came within 24 hours of also receiving a tip about Bill Hybels. And so that kind of one-two punch was really, really hard at the time. You know, again, like I've, I've said, came in every every day to work for a month, having to deal with additional cases of allegations of moral failure among Christian leaders. Talked for a few times about having to work through that. But there is something about carrying some of that over five years. I have not been on the front lines of reporting those stories now that I've been in kind of more editorial leadership. We've had a lot of good reporters look into those allegations, both the ones against Ravi Zacharias and the other stories that we've investigated. They are devastating. They are really, really hard. Literally, when I read the first draft of Daniel's story, uh, I literally cried and had tears in my eyes. There are some Terrible details and the story, not just of what happened physically, but what happened spiritually is truly heartbreaking. There is deep sadness, but there's also relief, I think, of bringing these allegations to light and to seeing the hard work that Daniel and our uh, other news editor, Kate Shulnut, put into these reports and finally getting to the point where our reporting met our standards of publication. There's stuff that you hear and that you learn about, but that you can't publish. We have pretty strong standards of what we publish here. And for us to finally say, yes, okay, we have enough to bring this into the light, there's a relief there. It's still deep, 
deep, deep, deep sadness. There's a knowledge that we're do- doing the work that God has called us to at Christianity today. It's a weird mixed mixed feeling in my gut check this week. But yeah, mostly sadness, mostly sadness. Also, you know, sadness, chief sadness this year is, is that Ravi has passed. And so one of the main reasons we do these kinds of stories is to offer people the chance to uh, make things right. When someone has passed, that becomes more difficult. Our editor's note talks a little bit more about that, but you can read some of the details of the sadness in that. Morgan, how about you? You have not been as as thick in the weeds on on some of this over the years. So how how are you dealing with this having having read it recently? At the risk of sounding somewhat like a broken record from some of the gut checks from other things that we've done, I do think that I just often end up compartmentalizing, treating scandals as if they're almost something that comes with the beat. It's weird, of course, at the same time when the beat, quote unquote, is also your faith. And for people who aren't hanging out in newsrooms all the time, the beat just, I'm just talking about like the area of focus, which for me is obviously evangelicalism. But I did have a friend a couple weeks ago message me because some of these Ravi allegations have been on the internet over the past couple weeks. And he was just like, I'm just like so disappointed and demoralized by reading these things. It reminded me in time for this article of just how much fatigue and exhaustion a lot of people are going to get by reading this piece about how this type of sin that is committed by leaders in our movement not only hurts and actively works against the faith of the people that they have directly victimized, but it really strains, if not can ultimately, you know, drive people away from the faith that they had, which is really crushing to see that type of thing happen and to wrestle with that given just the number of times that this seems to happen in any given year. So I think working at CT, I have to figure out often how to separate my faith, which I think in a good way from some of these larger stories of Christians who really disappoint me or betray me. But yeah, it is pretty discouraging to see this particular news. And I just Think about all the folks that really do love Ravi. I actually searched his name on Twitter before this because I kind of wanted to get a sense of what people were saying about the allegations and found tons of tweets from the past 24 hours of people just quoting words that he'd said that they'd found inspirational or convicting or interesting. So he clearly has just a huge legacy. And so the story is going to have really major effects. All right. Said our guest is... Yes, our guest is news editor Daniel Solomon. Yeah, that's kind of what, all we need to say for this one, but he's, he's the author of the news report that we published today that he reported with additional reporting from, from Kate Shellnut. Thanks, Daniel, for coming back on the show. Yeah, Chris, appreciate being here. Let's just start, you know, we may have listeners who may not know who Ravi Zacharias is. So can you just kind of give us kind of a, an, an overview of who he was? Yeah, Ravi Zacharias died earlier this year, but he was a Christian apologist, one of the most notable Christian apologists. Originally from India, born in India in 1946, moved to Canada when he was about 20, and has been in the U.S. since the 70s, and has really been famous within evangelical circles since the early 80s as an apologist, as someone who makes arguments about the philosophical foundations and framework that show that faith in God is reasonable. So he traveled the world. His ministry is in has offices in I think 16 or 17 countries now and he really traveled the world both like engaging non-believers about the reasonableness of faith and the philosophical foundations and and teaching many Christians to do that as well. So he both moved many people to faith in Jesus and also strengthened the faith of many Christians around the world. Let's talk about the world that he was a part of, which is Western apologetics. Can you tell us a little bit about that space in particular, how it's been characterized, how big or influential it's been in the evangelical world at large, and also how Robbie fit into it? Apologetics is mostly historically an academic discipline, right? It's a part of philosophical discourse going back to Aristotle and Greek philosophy and then Ibn Sinya. It's sort of Aristotle's philosophy goes into the Muslim world and it comes into the West through scholasticism. 
and these sort of church doctors of the church who engage with these big philosophical arguments about being and causes and existence, maybe capital E, existence. It's really not until the 20th century that this becomes a kind of popular phenomenon, that it becomes something that sort of normal Christians in the pew, rather than in like a PhD program somewhere, are engaging with. You really see it with the rise of mass media. So C.S. Lewis is a pretty prominent, famous example. I mean, I, I think most of our listeners will have heard of mere Christianity, but they may not know that that started as a series of radio broadcasts. So it's really mass media. It's really like the radio that makes it this kind of popular phenomenon. Now in late 70s, early 80s, there's kind of this boom and it's within evangelicalism. There's a boom of ministers and doctoral students and evangelists who are taking some of these old philosophical ends, uh, arguments going back to Aquinas or Anselm and sort of making them understandable and clear for, you know, regular, regular church folks. Ravi Zacharias is really a, a part of that change in the early 80s. He also seems to have become more prominent as, I think, American evangelicals in particular were becoming more interested in hearing from, engaging with, learning from Christian leaders from the, from the majority world. So I think, you know, there's, there is another sense where him having come from India also drew a lot of American evangelicals to, to wonder what, what he had to say and also to kind of give both a, an English perspective on things in some ways, but also an Indian perspective on. There was some of that in his talks where he would kind of refer frequently to Hinduism and to kind of world religions in a way that previous apologists, especially popular apologists, maybe like the Josh McDowell's or whatever, wouldn't quite do. Any any other sense of? Yeah, that seems right to me. I mean, his, so the, the ministry he founded is Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, and that the I of that acronym is is well earned. I mean, I sometimes international doesn't really mean that. For this apologetics ministry, it really was like both that Ravi. Zacharias brought his experience of, you know, growing up in India in that kind of multicultural society and where amid the religious conflict that so often happen, has happened in Indian history and his, you know, firsthand knowledge of Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam, as well as the fact that the ministry and Zacharias himself are not just speaking to an American audience. He had many, many engagements in at Asian universities and speaking in Singapore, and they have an office in Peru. You know, we so often in the U.S. end up having kind of a really provincial view of evangelicalism as if it's just an American phenomenon. And I would say in his life and ministry, you really see how international and, and global evangelicalism can be. So, Daniel, when did it first seem that perhaps not everything was adding up when it came to Ravi's character? It's so hard to know what the first signs are and who might have first seen them. You know, I wonder if we go back, if there are people he parted ways with organizations he didn't cooperate with that in retrospect might seem like they tell us more than they did at the time. I would say that I I started wondering, first when looking at some of his personal narratives, like a lot of preachers, he told personal stories and talked about stories in his own life. And there were standard parts of his biography that seemed to shift and maybe get exaggerated. And then parts that kind of couldn't be confirmed. And it's like, it might be true, but it sounds a little, sounds a little exaggerated. And there's not a lot of evidence. So, for example, he, he talks several times about winning a preaching competition where all the young Christians from India would come together and preach in some sort of competition. And it's like, maybe that happens. It sounds pretty fantastical, but it just seems like as his ministry went on, there are more stories that he tells that sort of don't have clear facts and that seem like they're sort of self-aggrandizing and growing in the telling. But then in 2017 is really when I think some issues kind of surfaced and everyone sort of had to stop and take notice. One with credentials, there was an issue where there were 
titles, claims, and advertised, specifically doctorates and teaching positions that were misstated or overstated. And then there was this issue at the same time that came out where there was a sexting scandal and allegations that he had solicited nude photos from a woman that he met at an event, then developed a relationship with and some correspondence with, and then solicited explicit photos. He sued her and uh, alleging some extortion was happening or that she was trying to extort money from him. And there was a settlement and there's some non-disclosure agreements. So there's some things we we don't know about the details of, of that situation. There was enough there, I think, to give anyone pause. Even if you believe everything that Zacharias said about the situation, there, there's some real red flags and things that don't seem right. Even at the same time that people are really benefiting from his, his speaking and his, his books, there's also questions being raised. We, we mentioned the sexting story, which we reported many years ago and, and, and came up as well in the obituary that we did. This report that we've published on Tuesday brings in another kind of another thread. That is a story that, according to your reporting, seems to have happened, was, was it a, a decade ago? Most of the allegations, or the allegations happened between 2005 and 2010. Okay, yeah. You just walk us through some of the specific allegations and, and stories that are in our article. Zacharias owned two spas, day spas, where people would go to get massages or facials or pedicures in a strip mall in um, Johns Creek, Georgia, which is just northeast suburb, pretty rich suburb of Atlanta. I spoke to three women who worked at these places, and they told me, after much conversation and reporting, but but they alleged that Zacharias would come in regularly for treatments on his back, and in the process of that, sexually harassed them, specifically that he touched them inappropriately and against their wishes, that he exposed himself to them in these private rooms where people would get treatment, and then ultimately masturbated. And one woman told me that he masturbated in front of her more than 50 times over the course of several years. The allegations are, are about sexual harassment at a business he owns, two businesses that he owns um, for the people that worked there. And to be clear, the day spas, as you mentioned, his ownership of those was not, a, was not really a secret. They weren't a secret. I mean, I certainly hadn't heard this before. I don't think these were sort of like public knowledge, but RZIM, the, the ministry that continues on in his name, has denied the statements that the women said, but they admitted that he owns the businesses. And I was able to obtain financial records that had his name on them and show that he was a part owner. And I found a record that indicated that he'd invested maybe $50,000. And he also had a business card listing himself as an owner of one of these day spas. So it's two spas in the same location. So one shuts down in 2008, and Zacharias and a business partner open a second spa in the same location. And, and when they reopen that, that spa, they actually have a grand opening and in, invite some famous people and some local celebrities to come and and be there. So it wasn't a secret. Certainly the people closest to Zacharias would know. It's a little unusual that an international minister, famous minister, owns a spa, and it wasn't something talked about, I don't know, at conferences or something. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, some businesses, you can imagine a, a you know minister who also owns a business who would give an example from his business life when preaching a sermon or something like that. And I just like, that's not what was happening here. If you can tell us a little bit about how you went about reporting the story, given the sensitivities that you had to navigate and also the stakes of it as well. Very carefully. I got the tip about the ownership of the spas first and started actually looking at that. Even that, I was like, I don't wait, what's happening here? And so I started looking for financial records that would show me, you know, just whether that part is is true. And my experience is that 
if stories are not true, you find out pretty quickly. But for every fact that you find out where it's like, yep, that part's true, that makes it more likely that the next thing that you will find out is true. So I just like move really quickly to kind of establish a couple of facts if, if I could. And then I, through the tip, had the name of one person who had worked there. And so I started talking to her, building trust and talking off the record, and then going and checking out every detail that I could of her story and her life that would confirm that she was telling me the truth. Kind of build from there. I mean, you look for who else knew, who else was around, who else worked at these places. I ended up hearing from, over the course of five weeks, from seven people who worked at these two spas, tracking them down, sometimes at great length. Three of them trusted me with stories and told me their accounts of what happened. They all overlapped in kind of notable and dramatic ways. One of them didn't want to talk, but confirmed a couple of facts, and several others also confirmed parts of the stories that they knew to be true. The lead of the story that you wrote says that Ravi Zacharias International Ministries has opened an investigation into allegations. Some of these claims that are in the piece have been out for a couple weeks, and this particular other sexting situation has been known about for a couple of years. How has the ministry responded previously compared to how it's responding now? I contacted RZIM late last week to tell them that I was working on this and asked to speak to somebody, actually. And they didn't want to talk to me, but sent me an email denying part of it, denying all of the claims of sexual misconduct, calling into question why this would come up now, and then actually affirming the part about the the businesses. They said these businesses were owned 10 years ago, so we don't know why it's coming up now, but they did acknowledge that, that they existed. We then went back and forth, and I, I sort of contacted them again when I had some more information and got this note that they have now hired a law firm, a mid-sized law firm, they won't tell me the name, in southeastern United States that is going to conduct an investigation. I'm not sure how to characterize that. Maybe, maybe the listener can decide. They didn't want to sit down and talk through everything with me. They just sort of said, here's what we're doing, and we won't answer any further questions, which is somewhat similar to what happened last time. They released a statement in 2017 about the sexting scandal and then declined to answer further questions. Maybe it's too premature to say anything, but I do know that oftentimes what people ask for when it comes to taking responsibility or holding organizations accountable is having those independent investigations. And I guess without knowing the law firm, perhaps we don't know all the details about that. But I did think that was interesting because there have been a number of high-profile organizations and ministries that I've seen over the years that have actively bristled at conducting an investigation of their organization. I think it's hard to know when a company or a ministry hires a law firm whether or not it's going to be independent. They have described it as independent, but of course, you know, a law firm has a fiduciary duty to whoever pays that law firm. And that's different than an outside investigation or journalistic organization where our commitment is really to the truth, which is not to call the investigation in question. I don't know when it will come out or what to expect or if it will come out even. I should also say that the women who told me that these things happened to them were all very clear that they're not expecting anything from the ministry and they're not asking for anything. They they all sort of independently and separately said, we don't want money. We don't want publicity. We don't want, they said, there's two of them told me, we don't even want, we don't even want an apology. Like I'm not interested in an apology. And that the only reason that they spoke up is because they believe that there are other women out there who are victims who think that they're alone and maybe think that this is their fault, that they actually did something to cause a great Christian man to stumble and and have blamed themselves or just felt really, really alone in their trauma. And these women spoke up just for that reason. Right. They, they, they think that there may be women who feel that way because your reporting indicated that, that they had felt that way, that a lot of these women did not know that there were other women before we contacted them. Yes. One of them has never spoken about what happened to her, to anyone, not to anyone who was there, not to her closest family. Like it's, you know, she said, I, I zipped it up. 
another woman told me that it didn't occur to her that, that it wasn't her fault until she'd had seven years of therapy and that it was actually some of the news coming out in 2017 that made her think, oh, wait a minute, my story sounds like this other woman's story of sort of having a friendly relationship with this famous minister and building trust and then that sort of escalating into inappropriate touching and sexual harassment. I actually am wanted to talk on about that in particular. Were these victims aware of who Robbie Zacharias was in the larger Christian world? Two of them were not originally and then became aware one person told me there'd be kind of whispers, like you wouldn't know who he was. And then someone would say, that's that, he's famous. And one of them told me her first words to Ravi was, so I hear you're a genius. But then at the second spa, at least, they sold his books in the store. So it was oh, pretty, really? <laughs> it was, yeah, you know, you could wait for a spa and read about the case for Christianity. And the women told me that they read the books in order to tell, you know, and if you give someone a massage or facial, like you can spend a lot of time with that person. And he would come in sometimes two or three times a week when he wasn't traveling. And so they would read the books and then ask him questions about faith and talk to them about their own spiritual journeys and their own thoughts. And, you know, he wasn't just a business owner to them. He wasn't just a kind of Christian CEO. They were also kind of aware of his celebrity and he, he had a role as a, as a minister in their, in their lives. And so what was the effect. It sounds like there was, uh, at least in, in these women's stories, that also the Rav Zacharias' status as a minister and the way he talked about God was wrapped up in the behavior as well. And how did, how did that affect in their them? In their reaction to it. Well, yeah. Also, I mean, wasn't there was a, there's a line in the, in the article where we talk about he kind of made spiritual justification for his behavior with them. So with the one woman in particular, she told me that he would talk about how much of a burden his ministry was and that this was, would leave it all behind if he could, but he couldn't, and that he needed to literally masturbate in front of her as a, as a release and as a therapy for the stress that he was under from ministry. Did affect these women. I mean, the, the research that I've seen shows that victims of any sexual harassment more than 90% of them experience post-traumatic stress disorder. So sort of intense feelings of isolation, anger, and helplessness. The, but the research shows that with Christian ministers, when you're, when you're sort of your spirituality is wrapped up in the abuse that happened to you, they're sort of always very, very careful to say not worse, but different. It often results in like intense feelings of shame, more intense feelings of shame, guilt, and sometimes long periods of spiritual confusion. So the one woman told me that she sort of suddenly stopped believing in God, took her a lot of therapy to kind of recover her faith. Another woman told me that she hasn't been to church since this happened, so in over, over a decade, and that she can't trust them. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection a victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, 
Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So given all of that, what does make this story different from other fallen Christian leader stories that we've heard in the past years? We mentioned Bill Hybels earlier. We did an episode at the beginning of this year about Jean Vanier and what makes it similar. Definitely similarities around celebrity and power and accountability. In many of these cases, it it really seems like when you drill down that the Christian leader was celebrated and supported by a ministry and assisted in ministry, but there wasn't really anybody holding that person accountable. I mean, a difference is the details about the spas. This was in this sort of business off to the side and not sort of as a direct result of traveling and speaking internationally. I don't know what to make of that, but that seemed unique to to the situation. Sure. But the other allegation that is in the story about the sexting controversy, that, that was more in line with some of the other stories that you hear. It was. Yeah, that was someone he met at a at a conference in Canada, and they were part of a donor dinner, actually, at, at one point. So there's so many patterns in these things, and there are patterns within one person's alleged sins, and then there's also patterns between them. I think it's it's heartbreaking, but we see them kind of over and over. What do all of these abuse allegations mean for evangelism? And it has to mean something about accountability. It has to mean something about not trusting celebrity and not trusting power and taking the accounts of people who aren't very powerful seriously. I mean, I think we've set up these structures that we think are serving the gospel and they do a lot of good work for the gospel, and yet they're just broken people. I don't know what to do about that, and I don't know how to undo the things that we as Christians have built and have supported, being willing to think about the truth and look at the truth and report the truth is, is one step. But you know, we also need repentance and we need, we need some change. And I don't know what that will look like right now. Ted, do you have thoughts about the lasting effects of this? I 100% agree with what Daniel said. I do hope that for Christian leaders, that they're is an awareness that these things don't stay hidden, that there is help on the other side of these things. And I think more importantly for the victims, I think to hear that they're not alone, I think that's one of the things that we've seen really in the last few years, both through the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, they have really helped to change, I think, some of these stories. One of the things that comes up in this story is that there's someone who says, you know, someone who hears Ravi say, you know, well, everyone's a sinner. And he says, wow, the way, it's not just that that he said that, it's the way in which he said that just hit him in an odd way. That's something that I think we should all be wrestling with as we talk about who Jesus is and who we are. That when we say all have sinned, we don't ever say that with a shrug. We say that with serious tears in our eyes, knowing that all have sinned and all have all have hurt. If I could add to sort of add on to that, like we all have self-justifications. And one thing you find when you report these stories is how many how many self-justifications there were, whether it was like, well, I'm doing great work, so it's okay that I fall out over here, or I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than a lot of other people, or I did this thing, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And we just hear, you know, or even all have sinned, we hear justification and self-justifications over and over. And the truth of the gospel has to be that we can't justify ourselves, but we are justified by Christ. And we're not justified because we did good work, and we're not justified because we had the right opinions or we knew what the truth was. You know, we're justified by the work of Christ dying on the cross. And if that doesn't make us more attentive to and more responsive to real victims in the world and suspicious of the ways that we justify ourselves and the people that we hold up. To me, that feels like a betrayal of the gospel that we need to promote. Daniel, I'm glad that you decided to use some of that language of justification. And I I found it interesting. You 
have some quotes in your piece from Ravi's spa business partner. And I thought I would just read some of them because there's also some religious language in them as well. At one point, he said he had no friends and he needed someone to talk to. He was very sad about all his demons. And he said that that was the condition of the human heart. At another point, Ted had just alluded to this. Said In a recording, Sharma recalls asking Zacharias why famous ministers of the gospel seem to have more moral problems than regular Christians. Zacharias told him that everyone sins. I never really even doubted him, and I don't know why, because I did feel this is not right. Uh, Sharma said, I should have understood that all have sinned means equal to all rather than putting people on a pedestal. I I just think <laughs> those quotes are really interesting, the way that they talk about sin and about the ways that Robbie was discussing what was going on in his life and the ways that he was using religious terms to talk about it and or maybe talk around it is in a good way. And I'm glad that you mentioned the idea of like justifying things for ourselves, because I think for all the times that we rationalize our own behavior, we're in many ways also giving other people permission to (laughs) rationalize our behavior as well. I just have to say over and over again, I've been so disappointed. We talked about this with like the Jerry Falwell Jr. podcast about people who are supposed to hold leaders accountable not doing that type of thing. I think sometimes that manifests in just not, again, calling for independent investigations far earlier, you know, almost on like the first time you end up hearing something, not necessarily because you want to believe every single claim that's out there, but also because I, I think we can't allow ourselves to think that some people have reached this like spiritual plane of not sinning anymore, but recognizing that even the people that we can look up to in our faith are still struggling all the time. And there may even be more sophisticated, be more of a sophisticated struggle at that point with the layers of self-deception that go on and with your ability to hide things from people who have trusted you to make good decisions and so forth. I do think that that is one thing that is really hard, right? I always want to just believe that Christian leaders at some point are going to have matured in their integrity. And yet at the same time, it feels like, (laughs) or it makes me ask myself if anyone has earned that right, you know, or if one of the ways to look out for each other and counsel each other and support each other is to take these claims of sin seriously because of the ways that we can just be engaged in really intense self-sabotage and self and simultaneously be having a lot of self-deception in the process. (laughs) That, That can be a grace that is shown to us in that way. Yeah, and I would really encourage ministries that are not in the middle of a scandal and that don't have any allegations against the people in their leadership to think about what are the structures that they have in place to hold people accountable and do they trust them? Should they be trusted? Another thing to look at is how would someone report the person in power in your organization if something happened what would they have to who would the, who could they go to how could they make that known i think even really well meaning organizations who deeply care about potential victims haven't really thought through how difficult they're making it for people who who've had something terrible happen to them and and feel really alone and really abandoned by this person they cared about, but also God and also the church. And even if you've had nothing happen in your church or your ministry, you can take steps to to change that. Daniel, I had a conversation with you yesterday about navigating all of this stuff as a Christian and a journalist at the same time. How did you and how have you tried to balance those different tensions that come up, especially knowing some of the effects that breaking a story like this is going to have in other people's lives and faith? I I kept thinking as I was writing about, and as I was reporting about kind of three groups of people, um, in addition to the specifics and the details I was trying to track down and confirm, but I, I kind of kept thinking about people who've been victimized in other circumstances or in other times, whether it's, you know, other people with Ravi Zacharias or, or even other ministers and just how they might feel alone, how they might feel abandoned, how, you know, one of the key factors of one of the key effects of abuse is making you feel thrown out and like refuse in the world. And I kept thinking about those people. And, you know, the women that talked to me all said that it was also those people that they were speaking up for. The second group I was thinking of, though, is ministers and people in positions of power who haven't done anything wrong. 
and that they might take this as a warning, you know, that they might see someone who did a lot of good work and who helped a lot of people's faith. And then all of this comes out and they might think, well, who, who am I to not have a structure in place to be protected or not have accountability? And do I trust the goodness of my heart so much that I'm not going to find ways to check myself? And then maybe also ministers who, who have done something. I mean, I, as a Christian, I believe in the possibility of repentance. And I believe that that's only possible with light. And so for the people who are reading this, who are hiding something themselves, I think telling the truth can be a call for those people to repentance, to, to confess what they've done and come forward and turn and go a different way. It's kind of my prayer as I send this out into the world. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this story. We really appreciate your reporting. There will be a link to it in the episode description. You can also find it just by going straight to ChristianityToday.com and reading Daniel's work there. Now is the time on the show that we call Slow to Speak, where we read letters that we've gotten from listeners. Our first letter is from Adam Kraus. Occasionally, we edit these for duration. I've noticed a glossing over of experiential manipulation in worship services in a recent few episodes. I grew up in a large Pentecostal church with this kind of weekly worship, and the emotional experiences resulting from worship there were always attributed to movement of the Holy Spirit. Two recent quick-to-listen episodes addressed worship music, and the guests seemed to take this attribution for granted. But we know our feelings can be easily manipulated and that spiritual feelings are not always indicative of the Holy Spirit's work. What one calls the Spirit, another might call mere brain chemistry. Do we not take the Lord's name in vain by immersing ourselves in contemporary worship environments and calling the inevitable engineered emotional response to the music there a movement of the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit truly involved there? On the other hand, music has always been a part of Christian worship. And even the simplest of songs can evoke an emotional reaction. And I see nothing in scripture that precludes the possibility of the spirit working through music. We can't dismiss the potential for goodness in worship, contemporary or otherwise, because of its manipulative potential. So, how should we think about psychological manipulation in worship? Ted asked a question along these lines in the episode, Churches Are Reopening. That doesn't mean singing is back, with Glenn Packham. And Glenn replied that he has a responsibility to use the power of manipulation or good. That answer assumes manipulation is morally neutral and that worshipers benefit from it in a Christian context. This may be true, but I would have liked to hear Glenn defend it. The more recent episode on Sean Foyt with Leah Payne presented another opportunity to address this, since Sean's ministry is based on this kind of manipulated worship experience. It's not clear to me how we should think about this issue but I think Quick to Listen would be a good platform for exploring it. Thank you, Adam. Super interesting response, no? It is, yeah. Something I think about a lot. I'm part of a Facebook group of worship leaders. I'm not one myself, but I find that group to be one of those very encouraging Facebook groups, just with a lot of worship leaders who think very, very deeply about their work. And yeah, I mean, I know worship leaders tend, well, in this group at least, they'll tend to be very, very aware and do tend to be stewards and do tend to be nervous. But yeah, this is a this is a bit of a perennial. And, you know, you talk a lot about this because, you know, it's not just music that has this potential for manipulation. I mean, this has been a big discussion in, in preaching circles about how much do you want to kind of evoke emotional response, deliberately evoke emotional response in the congregation. Part of, I think, church architecture is part of part of evangelism, is part of a lot of our life as a Christian is what do we do about emotion? We will continue to explore that, CT, and in this podcast. All right. I want to read another letter that was also touching on some of the themes that we talked about in last week's episode on Sean Foyt. It is from Megan Fowler. Thanks to you, Ted and Morgan, and recent guest Leah Payne for your discussion of Sean Foyt and Pentecostalism. I came away with a greater understanding of a denomination very different from my own, and in these divided times, the opportunity to move from bewilderment to understanding was thrilling which is just a cool sentence. <laughs> the discussion also helped me understand some extended family members who are Pentecostal. Thank you for the work you put into each week's show. Much appreciated. Ted, I'm kind of like wanting to steal this line of quick to listen, where we move from bewilderment to understanding in a thrilling way <laughs> or something <laughs> like right. that. I'll read this last letter right now from Elizabeth Johnson. 
I just wanted to let you know how grounding I have found the Quick to Listen podcast during the season where so many things seem to have a lot of noise and heat about them. I've been a listener for a while, but I particularly appreciate your coverage of current events in the last six months. It's a happy thing when there's been something I've been following in the news and then there's a podcast about it. Your knowledgeable guests bring such helpful context and I've been impressed by your own thoughtful questions and commentary. Thank you for all your hard work. I truly appreciate it and I'm grateful for the integrity and care with which you engage our world. That was a Thank you. lovely letter. Thank you, Elizabeth, for writing it. And I totally relate to the feeling of I've been following in the news and then my favorite podcast is going to talk about it. I know you didn't use the word favorite, but I'm going to assume that that's what this letter <laughs> evokes in it. <laughs> we, add, we add favorite every time people say podcast. Thank you, everyone, for all of these thoughts. There's so much good stuff here. If you have thoughts for us, especially given the heat and intensity that was discussed in this week's episode about Ravi Zacharias, please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Adam actually originally commented with a tweet that kind of got at these themes. And then I asked him to send us an email. And then as you saw, he sent us a super thoughtful email. So that might also happen if you tweet at us that I ask you to elaborate on it because you guys have interesting stuff to say. So thank you everyone for participating in this segment with us. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Ted, do you want to go or should I make Daniel do it? Let's start with Daniel this week. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I have one. My precious moment. My wife and I have been going to a river near where we live um, for the past, every Saturday, basically, for the past month, trying to suck the last joy out of summer, the last goodness out of summer. And we've been, you know, waiting and reading our books. And and last weekend, we actually did a little bonfire and cooked some food and stayed there all day, just kind of day camping. Because we were sitting there cooking our hot dogs. This man popped up out of the woods behind us <laughs> and says, may I intrude in your sanctuary? And we're like, what is this a Flannery O'Connor novel? Like what is happening? And we're like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's a river. Like it's public. It's open for all of us. And he goes, okay, I just want to, I just want to take my dip. Come to find out he lives on this river. The river's called the Nola Chucky. He lives on the river. He's lived there his whole life. And every day, between the first day of spring and Thanksgiving, he goes to the river and dunks himself three times and then goes home. And he's been doing this since he's four years old. And he's now <laughs> 50. Wait, he's now 63. So he's been doing it for 59 years. Wow. Taking himself out to the Nola Chucky, dunking himself. And when he left, I, I told I told Beth, I said, you can't tell me that people in Appalachia don't understand baptism. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. And I just, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking of that, that scene in, in acts where Philip is talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. They're in the desert, but they pass some water and the eunuch says, Hey, there's some water. What's to prevent me from being baptized. And I just really felt like the Nola Chucky man has embodied that in his life. You know, what is to prevent us from receiving grace from the river that, Close past our house. That's wonderful. So that's my that's my story. That's great. I'm not surprised that happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> where 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 can people find you? Mostly on Twitter at Daniel Silliman and my writing on ChristianToday.com. Great. Well, knowing that Daniel Silliman was going to be our guest, actually, I, I I did I played a board game this week, not knowing that Daniel would be our guest this week, but I chose it as my precious moment, knowing that Daniel would be our guest. I often share board game during this precious moment. So I will do that once again today. The board game I played this weekend with my son, two-player game called Watergate. Daniel is also working on a religious biography of Richard Nixon. So the combination of investigative reporting and Richard Nixon, I thought, well, that's that's appropriate this week. Player plays as the Nixon administration. One player plays as, quote, a newspaper editor. (laughs) There's a lot of interesting intellectual property missing uh, in in this, where whenever they're going to talk about the Washington Post specifically, it kind of all drops out and gets very generic, but things are very specific. You know, you have different kind of goals, depending on which, which side you are, trying to either block evidence or expose evidence. 
Was it a good game? Was it fun to play? It was a fantastic game. It was a it, it felt strategic. It plays really fast. I think it's probably, you know, this is our first time playing it, but I think subsequent plays will probably be about 20 minutes long. Well, there's a lot of strategy for a 20 or 30 minute game. It's very tug of war based. Each side is kind of getting tokens on their side or, or removing tokens from the other person's side. You're looking for a, a great two player strategic game. I strongly recommend Watergate. Very fun. I'll have to maybe uh, track down a copy for you, Daniel. People can find me on Twitter, Ted Olson. My precious moment, I think, is just similar to lots of precious moments that I've shared, which is finding fun things to do in Illinois that are not in Chicago. This week, I went to the Fox River, which is not far from where CT's offices are located. Yeah, hooray. It is beautiful. I highly recommend it. I went to some little towns that are along it. They're called Batavia. St. Charles and Geneva. And I think, honestly, you're not really in Chicagoland anymore when you go over there. I don't know what your opinion of that is, Ted, but it feels like the types of businesses and the way that the towns are designed and the fact that they kind of feel not suburban. Well, that was very deliberate. That was very deliberate. A lot of those towns were very much uh, vacation spots for uh, Chicago folks back, you know, 100 years ago. And still so, now. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, and still now. But yeah, even even more so when when you, you really felt like you were traveling out to the country. So it was there was a deliberate effort to make it not feel like you were back in Chicago. So, you know, the giant windmill in Batavia or the cute little downtowns of, of St. Charles and, and Geneva are all very much deliberately feeling like away places, even even I think for the people who, who live in those towns. Fun fact about the windmill in Batavia that you mentioned. I was reading the placards about it, and this windmill apparently was bought by, I don't know, millionaire, billionaire, who just kind of wanted something that his friends did not have. And so he bought it and stuck it on his property. And then the property that he and, he and his wife lived on. They also have a Japanese garden, which is really cool. And they visited that too. And then after they died, they didn't have any children. They left it in a place where it more or less fell into the hands of the park district. So now it's this like beautiful park that you can visit, which is my absolute favorite (laughs) way to enjoy rich people stuff is when it falls into public hands. It is very beautiful though over there. And we probably saw, I'm not kidding, 25 people or 25 different like photo sessions going on, graduation photos, family photos and engagement photos and all that. So that was really great to visit and to spend time. Literally, it was just like an hour train ride outside of the city. And that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. Send us your feedback and thoughts at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also available wherever you decide to get your podcasts. If you go onto Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Thank you so much for everyone who has done that. The podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Bruni Ashola and the music is by Sweeps. And we will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?